Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. There's growing pressure nationally and here in New England to safely get more students back to in-person school. I want as many bodies in this building as it could be because I want the school to feel like a normal school. But not everyone is on board. There won't be no education if your child is dead. You have to bury your child. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll hear about the politics of returning to the classroom. And for pregnant people, the decision to get a COVID-19 vaccine is far from straightforward. Sometimes you just want someone to tell you what to do. You're just an expert to tell you what the recommendations are. Experts offer the latest guidance. Plus, debut author Crystal Maldonado writes the character she always wanted to read. My thing was, I never felt like I got to see a fat character especially a fat brown girl who kind of gets to be that heroine and who gets to be desired and who gets to love herself. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. School districts and families have been dealing with the pandemic for a year now, and there's growing pressure from federal and state leaders to get more students back in the classroom, in person instead of online. There are questions about safety, and then there are a lot of politics at play. Joining us to talk about it are two education reporters for the New England News Collaborative, Sarah Gibson of New Hampshire Public Radio and WBUR's Carrie Young. Thanks for coming on next. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. So we'll start with you, Sarah. Last month, the governor of New Hampshire signed an executive order mandating kids be in person at least two days a week. That would start March 8th. Is that having an effect? It's actually not having a huge effect just because most districts are already open in some capacity. There were a few straggler districts that were already on their way to reopening with a hybrid model. And there are some charter schools that have remained remote. So they're trying to reopen. But this is really a a symbolic gesture by the governor. Under his order, schools can apply for a waiver of exception. And they can also transition to a a remote model for two days because of infections or staffing shortages related to the pandemic. But they have to get permission from the state to keep schools closed longer than two days. And what about in Massachusetts, Carrie? What are state leaders advocating for there? Yeah, state leaders here have also been advocating for more in-person learning, um, and they've been doing that all year. The most aggressive move that we've seen here, though, just happened in late February when the commissioner announced that later this month, he'd ask the State Board of Education to give him the authority to set a date for when remote and hybrid learning would no longer count towards student learning time requirements. Before the pandemic, any kind of remote learning, unless you were already a virtual academy, did not count towards student learning time. So it would be setting a date to go back to that 
Now, we have been told that parents can bank on having a remote and hybrid learning option through the rest of the school year, but the administration does seem like it's planning to, you know, begin phasing out those options pretty soon. And give us a sense of, you know, the landscape here. Are many students still remote in Massachusetts? Well, it's hard to say district by district. What I can say is that about 80% of schools in the state are offering some form of in-person learning. The, you know, who is opting to stay home at each individual school that's tracked on the district level. But what I do know is that when you look at some of the state's biggest districts, like Boston and Worcester, for example, both of those schools seem to have about a 50% uptake rate of students who are opting for those in-person learning opportunities. But that also means that half of the student population right now is at least opting for uh, remote. Hmm. Yeah, the the Biden administration has been vocal about wanting to get kids in person, especially in elementary and middle schools. Is that having an impact on governors, do you think, in New England, Sarah? That's a good question. I mean, just as Carrie was saying, the pressure here in New Hampshire from Governor Sununu, as well as state health officials to reopen schools has been present for for months. It predates the recent push by the White House. And state officials are saying, you know, as they track infection numbers in schools here, that transmission within the school building is quite low, particularly when there are those good mitigation measures like distancing and air quality and mask wearing. So they say there just isn't a huge risk in returning to in-person learning. The governor did make a big deal of CDC recommendations recently that said vaccination of teachers is not a condition for reopening. And, you know, we've been keeping an eye also on what's happening in our neighbor, Vermont. The governor there is also encouraging more schools to reopen fully four to five days a week, he says, by April. But he doesn't seem to be making that a mandate. So a little bit less pressure from the governor there in Vermont. But it sounds like there's been a lot of variability among districts in New Hampshire, like we've heard in Massachusetts, and in terms of the pace and level of reopening. So is this having an impact on the relationships between schools and the community that you're seeing, Sarah? The debate about reopening and opening more fully is definitely intersecting with a larger debate here about school choice. The Commissioner of Education, Republican lawmakers who now control the State House, and Governor Sununu are very pro school choice. And they're saying that the pandemic and parents' frustrations with reopening underscore the need for families to have more say in where their kids get to go to school and taxpayer dollars to fund that education, be it homeschool or private school, rather than the traditional public school. Now, another political player here, of course, is teachers unions. I think there's this perception out there that at least in some cases, teachers have been standing in the way of kids getting back to in-person instruction. What about in Massachusetts, Carrie? What are the dynamics there? Well, it is safe to say that the teachers unions here in Massachusetts have been a significant voice and force for that matter in this discussion. But it really depends on the district as to way uh, as to whether you can say that the unions have really gotten in the way or stalled reopening in any way. Some districts and their teachers unions have actually worked really productively and, and well together on this issue, while others have had a pretty adversarial relationship the whole way. Then some others sort of 
land in between there. But when it comes to getting more kids back into the classrooms, it is also important to remember that it's not just the teachers' unions who might be saying some opposition to going back. There is a large percentage of parents who don't feel safe sending their kids back into school buildings yet or just don't want to do the in-person thing yet for a variety of reasons. Like I mentioned earlier, in Boston, only half of the student body is enrolled in the hybrid plan, and the other half is saying we're good remote right now. That That's a big number. So what are some of the parents saying about that? Well, a lot of the parents who opted for remote learning for the rest of the year, at least, said that they either really liked the routine that they had set up and don't want to disrupt that for just a few months in the classroom. You know, that sense of normalcy and and patterns has been really important for their kids. But then there are quite a few parents who say that they are still scared about COVID-19 transmission. One of those parents is Boston mom Shalonda Johnson. You know, education is number one, but also health, I feel, is above that. And there won't be no education if your child is dead. You have to bury your child. And really, based on a lot of conversations that I've had with parents, I have noticed that it's it's a lot of parents from communities that have been hard hit by the coronavirus who are the ones that are mostly saying, you know, I'm really not in a hurry to have my kid back in a classroom yet. Sarah, you've you found something similar that students who would potentially benefit the most from in-person instruction are often in communities and families that are the most concerned about COVID, how is that affecting the return to school in New Hampshire? Well, right now, schools cannot force students to come back into the building. There is a remote option for every single family. And it's playing out in a pretty interesting way at West High School in Manchester. This is an area that's very high poverty. A lot of families are connected to people who themselves have had COVID. And there are a lot of high-need students there However, many of them are opting to stay fully remote. I spoke to Principal Richard Deschard. He just actually sent a letter to parents asking for them to send their kids back in, not two, but four days a week into high school if they're struggling at home. Here's what he said. I want as many bodies in this building as it could be because I want the school to feel like a normal school. It still doesn't feel like that. When I walked through the hallways, I mean, it's, you know, 10 to 20 percent of students there right now. So he's really hoping more parents will opt to send their kids back in the coming months. My guests are education reporters Carrie Young from WBUR and Sarah Gibson from New Hampshire Public Radio. It's been great having you guys on next. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. We turn now to Rhode Island. At the start of the school year, nearly every district in the state offered in-person instruction. This was unusual for a blue state during the pandemic, according to the New York Times. And though at times Rhode Island has been one of the state's hardest hit by COVID, for the most part, schools have continued to offer classes in person. Cindy Giard is a principal at Anthony Carnivali Elementary School in Providence, and she joins us to talk about what it's been like to be in person all this time. Principal Giard, welcome to Next. Thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate it. Well, I want to actually go back to the beginning of this school year. And it's September. It's your first day welcoming students back to the building. How were you feeling that morning, Principal? Uh, Well, mixed emotions, right? You have like here, you're a little nervous because of COVID, but you're also excited that the kids are coming in and you're seeing those smiles and you know, welcoming your parents. So I think it was just a a wonderful 
day of uh, it, it was um, exciting to see all the kids coming in. Do you remember, you know, your first interaction where it became apparent, like, okay, this is a whole different ball game? Not really. You know, parents. Uh, we we had already conversations, uh, Zoom meetings with parents, and uh, we tried to make sure that parents were comfortable coming in uh, with their students. So you know, it, it was a great opportunity to also when parents, you know, came to drop off their students, that we would say they're going to be safe, they're okay, and you know, it went very well that that morning. Yeah, and then at the end of the day. One of your staff members tests positive for COVID-19. And what's going through your mind? I mean, it's happening, this thing that we're all dreading right from the get-go. Yes. So, um, you know, you plan, 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 you know, and um, we had protocols in place. Uh, We we had to communicate with the teachers if this happens and this is what we're going to do. But when that came about, you know, obviously I, I was concerned, you know, about the employee, of course, and it was like, okay, here, this is, this is happening, right? <laughs> it's first day of school, it's happening, but, you know, I wasn't going to, to let that interrupt what we, you know, the momentum that we had with the kids, you know, in the morning and the following day. That sounds like such a such a situation to be in right from right at the beginning. How did you feel in during that time? You know, I am a very uh, positive person and I just wanted to see the positive of this situation, right? I told my teachers that it, it was okay, that as a team, they're, they're wonderful. I have a wonderful um, team of, of teachers and my coaches with, that are wonderful and they, they were um, helping one another. So... Uh, they came together uh, and rise to the occasion. Yeah, for, for educators who might be nervous about getting back in the classroom, do you think it's worth it? Like, how do you tell them, how can you share with them the way that you yourself as an individual have processed, like, the risks and the rewards? Again, it's if, if they haven't been in school, right, it's going to be of course, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be nervous, which is normal. We're, we're humans, right? And it's going to happen. We're, we're going to be nervous. But I think for me, I think, um, you know, I love what I do. I, I love my students. I love uh, the teaching and learning and, and, you know, see our students smile. And my passion for that is just, you know, I, I I always said to, to even to my staff, like, I mean, we, we, we can do this, you know, as, as a team, we can do this because we need everybody on board uh, because it's important. And I know, you know, there's going to be those uh, teachers with all my respect. I mean, it, they're going to still have that behind their, their, their mind, right? Like, oh, my God, am I safe? This is, doesn't feel right. But if you follow protocols, if you follow social distancing, if you're wearing your mask every day, you have your hand sanitizer and, and you clean, you know, and you're, you have your janitors that are cleaning, we will be okay. You know, we will be, believe me, it will be okay. That was Cindy Giard. She's the principal at Anthony Carnavali Elementary School in Providence, Rhode Island. They've offered in-person school since September.
This past week, we heard from listeners who shared how they're feeling about the push to bring more students back in school. Jed Klebowski teaches middle school band in Connecticut. His district has mostly been hybrid. And while he says he really wants to get all his students back in school, he's concerned about safety. He wrote, quote, The students do not socially distance naturally. Teachers can say a thousand times a day to stay six feet apart, and students will just gravitate toward each other, unquote. Klebowski says he'll feel much safer now that Connecticut is vaccinating teachers. Vaccination has also been on the mind of a middle school science teacher who called in from Vermont. My name is Gregory Hennemus. I live in Derby, Vermont, and I teach at Hazen Union High School. Hennemuth says he was initially frustrated when state leaders said they thought it would be too divisive to prioritize teachers. But now Vermont is expanding vaccine access to educators. Dawning upon some of these government people that it's like, uh, I think we better start vaccinating the teachers if we want to have them in the classroom full time. President Joe Biden recently called on every state to prioritize vaccination for educators. He said, it's time to treat in-person learning like the essential service that it is. Gregory Hennemuth had this final thought about teachers and the future of schools. We have to put more money into the infrastructure of education. There's a lot of concerns there that we should address if we acknowledge schools and teachers being a critical component of society. Coming up, pregnant people wrestle with getting the COVID-19 vaccines. Plus, the racist history of Mass Audubon's founder and the group's push to make access to the outdoors more equitable. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Federal agencies and national organizations recommend that most adults get a COVID-19 vaccine when it's their turn. That's because large-scale trials have shown that the vaccines are safe and effective. But pregnant people were left out of those trials. As Connecticut Public Radio's Nicole Leonard reports, their decision on whether to get the shot can be less straightforward. Scientists and researchers have been talking about COVID-19 vaccines since last spring, when the virus first surged through communities. But the timeline for development was really unknown. So it was there in my mind, but it wasn't something I was counting on in terms of like protection or timing with pregnancy. That's Samantha Morris, who lives in Glastonbury. She's about 37 weeks pregnant with her second child. In December, she was notified that she was eligible for a vaccine in phase 1A due to her profession as a psychologist. Up until that point, in my mind, I either wasn't getting it while I was pregnant because I wouldn't have access or I wasn't going to do it because there wasn't the data. The vaccines were not initially studied in pregnant people, so the current data on safety and efficacy is limited. That's why the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say the vaccine should be offered to those who are pregnant, but that the final decisions are individual. Sometimes you just want someone to tell you what to do, 
you know, just an expert to tell you what the recommendations are. Dr. Ilona Goldfarb and her colleagues are having these discussions with pregnant patients and their families multiple times a day to help them process the risks and benefits of vaccination. Goldfarb is a high-risk obstetrician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and became the COVID-19 lead for the hospital's OBGYN department. Some patients are ready to go. They're looking for this discussion with me, but they're primed and ready. They want the vaccine. And other patients are really on the fence and they need more time. And we work through that time. And other patients are absolutely not going to get it. Um, I'm going to wait until postpartum. I'm going to wait until I'm... and breastfeeding or even afterwards. Goldfarb says all of these decisions are valid, as long as they're informed ones made with the correct facts and information. She makes sure patients understand what an mRNA vaccine is and emphasizes that it does not contain live virus. And we know that other vaccines given routinely during pregnancy that do not contain live virus, vaccines such as influenza vaccine, Edap booster, are effective during pregnancy at creating the immune response that we want to protect the pregnant individual and the offspring. Data on this specific vaccine might be lacking, but health providers do know a lot more about COVID-19 illness in pregnant people. Ongoing studies since the spring show those who are symptomatic during pregnancy are more at risk of severe illness and have higher rates of mortality compared to their non-pregnant counterparts. These cases are still rare overall, but Dr. Audrey Miriam, a maternal fetal medicine physician at Yale School of Medicine, says she has to present the risks to her patients. If it's winding up in the ICU and separated from your family and potentially other children at home or potentially an early delivery and, you know, being intubated or having the breathing tube and like all those things, you know, in the case of a severe infection um, versus getting the vaccine. Miriam helps patients assess their individual risk for exposure to COVID-19. That considers living situations, community interactions, and job responsibilities. Somebody who it's their first baby and works from home primarily now is at a different risk than somebody, one of my patients who has two kids, but is also working in the medical field and, you know, seeing their own patients every day. Bianca Noronas began factoring in all of these things when she was thinking about her own pregnancy. Noronas lives in Meriden and is a caseworker for pregnant and postpartum women. The first time that I hear that the women can have the vaccine, but they don't make the studies in this population, I was very concerned. I was like, no, I'm not going to have the the vaccines either doing breastfeeding. That was my first feeling. But Noronas began doing more research in between working from home, caring for her six-year-old daughter, and studying for a master's degree in public health. She spoke to her midwife. She saw national medical organizations that focus on reproductive care and pregnancy give out reassuring guidance on the vaccines. She has chosen not to get a vaccine before her April due date, but she has decided to get vaccinated soon after birth and while she is breastfeeding. And I know that vaccines are good in other situations with other disease. So I have to trust the COVID vaccine. That's why I, I say, yes, I'm going to try, but later. For Samantha Morris, her decision on whether or not to get a vaccine became clearer after talking with her obstetrician, especially about the risks of getting ill while pregnant. There was always this piece of me in the back of my mind that was worried for what would happen if I caught COVID. Since then, Morris has gotten both doses of a COVID-19 vaccine with minimal side effects. I think the biggest thing is just for, you know, people to know that no matter what they decide, it's 
it's the right choice for them. You know, there's just too much unknown right now to say anything more. Formal clinical trials on the COVID-19 vaccines in pregnant women and children are currently underway. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nicole Leonard. Paid family leave. That's when you take time off from work after having a baby or for a medical issue, and you still get paid. Right now, it's not required in northern New England states. That's Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Southern New England is a different story. In 2022, most employees in Connecticut will get paid family and medical leave. Rhode Island is already there, and it just went into effect for Massachusetts this year. Welcome news for many, but it has quickly turned into frustration. As GBH Radio's Gabriella Emanuel has found, some checks are showing up late or not at all. Felipe Zamberlini and his wife were super excited to become parents, but they weren't sure exactly how they'd manage childcare for their soon-to-be-arriving daughter. My wife and I had some really hard conversations talking about who would quit their jobs to be able to take care of her, who would be the caretaker. Both of them work for homeless shelters in the Boston area and have college debt. So Zamberlini knew quitting his job to be a stay-at-home dad might mean selling the house they recently bought in Salem. But he says their daughter, Clara, was born at the perfect time. With the new law, he has three months of paid leave. It's just amazing to be able to share everything that I know with her. Um, And, you know, it's just truly phenomenal. Massachusetts is joining a small number of states and a large number of countries that offer people paid family and medical leave. They get a portion of their income, kind of like unemployment. But Zamberlini says the rollout has had good parts and bad parts. First, the good. He says the state online application is shockingly easy. You can fill it out in about five minutes. Like this is good government 101 how to properly roll out a really simple user-friendly application. The state contracted with a company that's specifically focused on making sure getting government benefits isn't burdensome. The state should be bragging about this left and right. Zamberlini says the bad part is the payments for paid leave have been late, very late. With bills due and late fees piling up, Zamberlini was forced to pull money out of his family's savings and spend time dialing up the state's call center. You should be getting a check in the mail uh, next week. Nothing. Call back. All right. Where is the check? Where is the money at? Coming next week. Nothing. Call back again. Coming next week. Nothing. Call back again. It finally arrived, he says, six or seven weeks late. If you look at the Facebook page for the state's Department of Family and Medical Leave, there are many unhappy residents saying they haven't been paid for weeks. This is all news to State Representative Ken Gordon of Bedford, who sponsored the legislation. So if somebody's been waiting for six or seven weeks, when you think about it, it means that would be among the very first applicants. Hopefully this is a system that is just beginning and will work itself out. The state's Department of Family and Medical Leave declined numerous requests for an on-the-record interview and did not answer questions about how many people have been impacted by the late payments. In an online town hall about the new law, Rosalind Acosta, the Secretary of Labor and Workforce Development in Massachusetts, acknowledged the delay in payments. Timelines are longer than originally estimated for a variety of reasons, 
but we appreciate your patience as we work to uh, process all of these claims. She says they've had a very high number of claimants since the year started and that people can help speed things along by filling out applications completely and by providing color copies of the right documents. And unfortunately, failure to do any of these uh, will result in a longer processing time. A state official says the department is adding more employees to its call center to improve customer service. And as of mid-February, the majority of some 3,400 claimants had been paid. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. There's been an increase in adults struggling with mental health challenges during the pandemic. That's according to a survey last summer from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A new mental health center in Newport, Rhode Island, hopes to intervene. It's catering exclusively to young adults, regardless of their ability to pay. Antonia Ayers-Brown of The Public's Radio reports. Jamie Lahane's son was 18 years old and had just gone off to college when Lahane's phone rang unexpectedly. I got the call from the campus police that your son is being rushed to a local community hospital and that he's had a serious mental breakdown. It turned out to be a psychotic episode. Lahane said his son was later diagnosed with bipolar disorder. For Lahane, who's president of the organization Newport Mental Health, this moment more than a decade ago was a turning point. He had dedicated his career to working in mental health, But he saw firsthand how easy it can be, as a parent, to misinterpret early signs and symptoms of mental illness in young adults. Even though full adult serious mental illness doesn't emerge until late teens to 25, we should have been more alert. And because he was the captain of two varsity, you know, the basketball and the baseball team, and because he was in the national, oh, he's going through a phase and it was a breakup. Here I am, a national expert in children and adult mental illness. I missed it. Lahane said his grown-up son is healthy and thriving, in part because of the effective treatment he got as a young adult. But many go much longer, even years, from their first symptoms of severe mental illness to when they finally receive treatment. What happens in that that ramp-up period is hell. Trauma, arrests, co-occurring drug use that is disabling, that's as much as disabling as the initial mental illness. That's why Newport Mental Health opened the new Young Adult Center this winter, to specialize in early intervention. It's not so formal. It's kind of like the club. It is, yeah. The program, called Healthy Transitions, is open to people 16 through 25 years old. The location is entirely separate from Newport Mental Health's other sites that serve older adults, It's decked out with games, and the staff is looking to get beanbag chairs. Little touches to make this space feel fun. Team leader Gina Mullen said that's important, since the stigma around mental health contributes to young adults' reluctance to seek help, or even recognize the unique challenges they face as mental health issues. Just the developmentally, what, you know, is supposed to happen, the milestones during that time is challenging. And... It doesn't take much for somebody to go off course. Sometimes young adults go through periods of sadness or depression, Mullen said. But the team at the Young Adult Center is trained to spot behaviors that indicate more severe mental health disorders, 
like clinical depression. Somebody that is, you know, in bed five days a week, not showering, you know, for a period of time, that's a little more than just being depressed. During the pandemic, over 60 percent of 18 to 24-year-olds nationally have reported feelings of anxiety or depression. Those figures are significantly higher than for any other age group. Newport Mental Health sought federal funding for the center before COVID hit, Lahane said. So it's only by chance that it opened as young adults are facing mental health struggles of new proportions. We were already identifying this as a top need. Now it's it's a top need on steroids, right? Staff hope to treat 45 people in the program's first year. Two months in, they're already working with about 20. Those clients are treated regardless of their ability to pay or whether they have insurance. And it's an outpatient program, so they're able to live at home and stay in school or their job if they have one. Because when you fall out of your natural supports and meaningful activities and like that's where the, the disability builds and builds. The program is already treating a wide spectrum of mental illness, Lahane said. Some clients have severe depression or anxiety, while others have PTSD or are experiencing their first episode of psychosis. One teenager presented with delusions, out of touch with reality. But after the staff worked with the client and his family, they figured out he was inadvertently inducing his psychosis through drug use. He's been doing better since, Lahane said. Here's one kid. We may give him a life like my son, where maybe he wouldn't have had that opportunity. At a time when so much of the world feels like it's at a standstill, the new center wants to reassure young adults they don't have to wait for that help. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Antonia Ayers-Brown. There are Audubon societies across New England. The mission is to protect birds and wildlife and offer a place for people to be in nature. But the name Audubon comes from a man with a racist history, a naturalist who was a slaveholder. Now the Massachusetts Audubon Society is reckoning with that history. WBUR's Kyrie Thompson visited Mass Audubon's Boston Nature Center and has more on this struggle with its legacy and its goal to make nature more accessible. Three toad prints of wild turkeys dot the snowy paths of the Boston Nature Center in Mattapan like dinosaur tracks, and the leafless trees are alive with chirping and the flutter of wings. The Mass Audubon Society's Julie Brandlin, David O'Neill, and Pat Spence peer into the branches for a closer look. I feel like I see bits of orange yeah, on Yeah, I think that's an American robin. The Mattapan location has been around since the late 1990s, but Mass Audubon itself is more than 100 years old. The society gets its name from renowned conservationist and naturalist John James Audubon, who was famous for his vivid paintings of American birds. But O'Neill, Mass Audubon's president, says the society is now grappling with another piece of its namesake's legacy. He was a slaveholder, and that's clear. He's also um, a racist. O'Neill says the protests against racial injustice following George Floyd's killing last year led the society to reevaluate and retell Audubon's history. 
An essay on the organization's website now details how Audubon's family bought and sold enslaved people in the early 1800s, and how Audubon himself spoke out against emancipation and abolitionist movements. O'Neill says the society also got a wake-up call from the confrontation between Christian Cooper, a black bird watcher, and a white woman in New York's Central Park the same weekend Floyd was killed. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. You know, this notion that everyone is welcomed to nature is one that's not necessarily true. That's Mass Audubon President O'Neill again. We've been focusing a lot of our time and attention on how do you create equitable access to nature. Working with O'Neill on that mission is Pat Spence, one of Mass Audubon's four black board members. My passion with all this is, how do I get more people to a Boston Nature Center yeah. that literally live around here? Yeah. It can't just be an ad in a newspaper. It's got to be even more outreach, where oftentimes it's just a one-on-one. Spence has been coming to these grounds since she was 10 years old and still lives just down the road from the Nature Center in Mattapan, a heavily black and immigrant neighborhood. The key is they don't know about it. And there's still people we know. And it could be a stone's throw that still don't know we're here. <laughs> Spence partners with Julie Brandlin, Mass Audubon's Boston region director, to bring community groups to Mass Audubon's sanctuaries to encourage them to join. Brandlin says once people know about Mass Audubon's properties, they often return. It's a fallacy to think that people of color do not come to nature centers. Nature is available to all of us, right? Mass Audubon says it's not tracking its members' demographic data at this time. But Brandlin says the society is prioritizing diversity in its staff and education programs, including enrollment in Boston Nature Center's preschool and internships like its youth leaders program. David O'Neill also says the society will work with tribal communities to tell the stories of indigenous groups that once lived on its land. He sees Mass Audubon striving more for the spirit of its founding mothers, Harriet Hemingway and Minna Hall, who were both abolitionists in the 1800s, than the man they named their organization after. But O'Neill says Audubon's history should no longer be overlooked, especially in this moment. Because we carry the name Audubon, we feel responsible for understanding, telling, sharing all of that history, not running from it, but learning from it. He hopes addressing that past can help create a better, more inclusive present, both in society and in nature. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kyrie Thompson. After the break, the new young adult novel, Fat Chance, Charlie Vega, and why representation in literature matters. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. When Charlie Vega describes herself, 
she uses the word fat. She's learning to celebrate who she is and how she looks, although her weight still affects her relationships with crushes, with her best friend, and her mom. Charlie is the main character of Crystal Maldonado's debut young adult novel called Fat Chance Charlie Vega. Crystal grew up in Connecticut and lives in Massachusetts, and she joins us to talk about the book. Crystal, welcome to Next. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're so happy to have you here, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what was the inspiration behind Fat Chance Charlie Vega. Sure. So more than anything, I really wanted to write a book that featured a character that looked like me, especially in a rom-com. So I had read a lot growing up and I watched a lot of TV shows and movies and, you know, I loved love and I loved watching characters fall in love. And my thing was, I never felt like I got to see a fat character especially a fat brown girl who kind of gets to be that heroine and who gets to be desired and who gets to love herself. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just write one. (laughs) So there is more positive fat representation now, but it still sort of feels like, you know, fat girls deserve a little more. And I would love to see them have these stories and be kind of nuanced characters. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about how your experience growing up in Connecticut compares with Charlie's? Honestly, Charlie has a lot of the same identities that I have. So we're both fat, we're both Puerto Rican, and we're both white, and we both love books and reading. And so I kind of gave her those similarities to me because I felt like I could most authentically speak to them, since that was my experience too. So Unlike Charlie, I wasn't bullied in school. I, you know, I had a good group of friends. I was very fortunate in that way, but I still felt that loneliness sometimes when you feel like you're different than your classmates in, you know, a multitude of ways. So I felt like my body didn't look like theirs and I was one of the few brown kids and I could look around a classroom and sometimes I was the only person who had those things that were part of their identity. And even kids can be the nicest people to you, but you still sort of feel that you're different or you're not like everybody else. Not everyone is necessarily comfortable using the word fat, um, which you use. Why have you decided to use that word? So to me, fat is really a description of my body and not anything else. So I spent a long, long time being hurt by that term or thinking of it as kind of a three-letter word that we don't say, but that felt like it gave the word fat and honestly, other people who used it, it felt like it gave them too much power. And so I kind of wanted to reclaim this word for myself and for my own sanity because I felt like, well, people are probably going to refer to me as fat anyway. And if I'm using that word, then it doesn't sting as much and it becomes something that's as, you know, as common in my vocabulary as, you know, like the word tall or short or other descriptors I might use to describe somebody or myself. 
And I also think this is, you know, this is something that's deeply personal. We still use the term fat as an insult a lot of times. And so not every person who is plus size will like that term. And I think that's okay too. I think if we can just start to talk about these things and sort of make room for the terminology that might exist, that would be wonderful. And I'm okay being called fat now. Like <laughs> it's a description and, and nothing more. And I kind of like it that way. So this is a romance novel, and the way you write about Charlie and her obsession with love as a teen is so relatable. It just, it brings me right back. Um, And, you know, she's constantly thinking about crushes and wondering, you know, will I be kissed? And thinking about the scariness of holding someone's hand for the first time. Um, And in the book, Charlie gets to know her classmate, Brian, and they start to develop a really sweet friendship, which gets even sweeter on Valentine's Day. She had told him that Valentine's Day gets harder as you get older. And he took that cue and he makes her this beautiful card. Well, he makes beautiful cards for everyone in their art class and gives them out. And I don't want to give too much away about what happens in their relationship, but what what inspired this relationship with Brian? So... Honestly, Brian is inspired by my real life husband (laughs) and the two of us met when we were in high school, much like Brian and Charlie. And I just had the best time being friends with my husband and then having kind of a similar trajectory that Charlie and Brian have where they're pals and then, you know, they get to know each other a little better and then, you know, not to spoil things, but maybe they start to develop some feelings And I just have such positive memories about that time in my life and how strong all of those feelings were. Just, I just loved all of that as a teenager, just thinking about love and thinking about, will I fall in love and what would that be like? And I think that's the experience for a lot of teenagers. And I think it's a really special time in your life when you are just experiencing all of this for the first time and every single thing feels so big and so special and so meaningful. And, you know, we get older and we sort of forget about some of those firsts and how important they are. So I really wanted to pay special tribute to all of those wonderful things that we're experiencing for the first time when we're teenagers and show just how magical that whole experience is of falling in love and finding somebody who loves you and helps you really love yourself. You say Brian is based off of your husband. So as you're writing this book and revisiting your high school years, did it rekindle things in any sort of way to go back and and revisit? Oh, it totally did. Like, it was so nice to go and reminisce about some of, like, our first dates. So that whole scene that you mentioned where Brian makes Valentine's Day cards for everyone in their art class and he sort of gives them out to everyone, my husband did that. (laughs) And so I went and I dug out that Valentine from way back when um, that I still have and, you know, we showed it to him again and we were you know, laughing about it and like, oh, remember when you made this and we were just friends. And in that way, I feel like it was really nice to have us remember 
how we started and how we got here, especially now, you know, we're married, we have a house, we have a dog, and we recently became parents to an adorable daughter. Um, So it was just really, really special to think back on all of those beginnings of our relationship and to kind of celebrate that in a way. Charlie's relationship with Brian is so different from the interactions she had with her previous crush, who's this football player named Cal. What did you want young readers to get from this contrast? So I really wanted to highlight the differences in how Charlie interacts with these two boys in her school and just show like what a healthy friendship and relationship can look like juxtaposed against one where the motives are a little unclear. Cal is not the kind of person who really makes Charlie feel good about herself. And so I thought that by juxtaposing these two boys, it would be kind of an easy way to be like, okay, yeah, I see. (laughs) I see what kind of relationship I should be striving for. And Hopefully it shows people that they deserve good things and they shouldn't settle for less. Crystal, I'd love to have our listeners just get a sense of the book. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could read the very beginning of chapter 50. And just to set it up a bit, Charlie has just gone through a ton of upheaval and fights um, and conversations with the three people she's closest with, her best friend, her mom, and Brian. And she's been avoiding going to school, and and then she has this moment. It takes time to process everything, but I find myself realizing I just need to let it go. All of it. I've got to shake these feelings of inferiority. I can't be Amelia, nor do I want to, at least not anymore. I want to be Charlie, unapologetically Charlie. Shoulders back, head held high, fat, beautiful body and all. Shedding those thoughts leaves me feeling lighter than I have ever felt before. Finally. Thank you. And I should just say Amelia is her best friend. Um, And this feels like a big moment in the book. Like you're sending a message directly to young readers. Is that what's happening here? Are you sending a message? Oh, I sure am. And I hope that they get that too. So (laughs) I hope that the readers of this book find themselves wanting to be kinder to themselves and wanting to basically just appreciate who they are and make room for themselves exactly as they are, just like Charlie was able to do. Well, Crystal, I want to thank you so much for talking to us. It's been so great. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Crystal Maldonado is the author of the young adult novel Fat Chance Charlie Vega, which came out in February. Crystal grew up in Connecticut and lives in Massachusetts. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just check out our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 